Get your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4 as we continue to march verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. If you have just started attending Gospel City Church in the last four weeks, I'm a new face to you. So uh, my name's Trent. They let me be the pastor around here and it's a privilege to be back uh, doing what I think God created me to do. But you guys were in good hands over the last four weeks. Didn't uh, Micah and Tyler and Ben and Stephen Love do a great job feeding us God's word in the last month? And um, I was watching from a distance, and uh, as of course you knew, uh, that series was about biblical community. And uh, many of you, over 75 people, have joined a small group in the last month. That's fantastic. We're just trying to be good stewards of the growth that God gives us around here. Those 75 new people need um, about seven to 10 small group leaders now. So it's time for some of you to step up and lead some of those groups as we continue to steward the group growth around here. Uh, I had the privilege uh, last week of taking a group of people from our church to Israel and walking where Jesus walked. Here's a picture I took while we were there at a very strategic location. Uh, behind me, you will see us in front of the garden tomb where it could have been that Jesus was resurrected. We looked. He's not there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so we are excited about uh, the Easter celebration coming up. You know, a lot of people, when they go to Israel, it's, it's kind of a sentimental event for them. They, they, they like, you know, I think I'm going to feel closer to Jesus there. He's not there. Okay. Uh, he said that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, that's where he is. And so he is just as much right here in Granger, Indiana as any other spot on the planet. So uh, we're going to continue to proclaim Christ exalted over all. And so uh, as we start this new series, we've got a new name. Uh, the last time I was here, I changed the name and then I left for four weeks. See how I did that? And uh, came back. I was like, I don't even know what the church is going to be called when I get back. But uh, we are so excited about things that are new about here. So we're kicking off a new series. And of course, we entitled this series, All Things New. Interestingly, we picked that title about six months ago before we uh, really got serious about changing things that were new. And so it's God's timing that we dive into that. And the reason for that is this, whether you have been in church for 30 years or 30 minutes, you need a new encounter with Jesus. I need a new encounter with Jesus this morning. And so every time we open God's word, every time we open our hearts and our ears to hear from him and invite him into our presence, we get to have a new encounter with Jesus. One of the last verses of scripture I left you with uh, before I left was this verse in Luke chapter five. Jesus said this, no one puts new wine in old wine wineskins. And this was a warning to us never to become an old, crusty, stale Christian. That's like having an old wineskin. And Jesus said that it, new wine burst an old wineskin. Now, we don't want you just to burst right here because you uh, are, have become an old, crusty Christian. We need new encounters with Jesus. Jesus is the new wine. And as we open our hearts, he pours that new wine into us, creates new 
new power, new life, new love, new passion, new worship, all of those things. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So I want to leave today filled up with new wine. How about you? So that's what we're going after as we begin this series. Over the next um, four or five chapters here, that's what we're going to be encountering is Jesus as new wine. Now, in the first three chapters, just by way of review, if you've been following along here, um, we, in that series we called Behold, uh, Luke, who was a Gentile, the only Gentile writer of Scripture that we have, is writing to Gentiles, his his rich friend Theophilus, and um, Luke is introducing him to who Jesus is is. He's trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And he parades in front of us all these witnesses with an opinion about who Jesus is. So the angels had an opinion about who Jesus was. The shepherds had an opinion, Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist. And then finally, we saw that God the Father had an opinion about who Jesus was. And at Jesus' baptism, God the Father said, this is my beloved son. And so there is a definitive declaration that Jesus is God's son. So we get to chapter four. Now we get to hear from Jesus himself. So the question is, who does Jesus think Jesus is? So we're going to pick up the story here in verse 14 of Luke chapter four. And it says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. Now remember, he had just been in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, which was in the southern part of Jerusalem, very desert land, rocky, hilly, no life. That's the wilderness. And now we see Jesus coming out of the wilderness in power into a very fertile place in northern Israel, which is known as Galilee. Do you like to use the maps in the back of your Bible? You ever wonder, when do we get to use the maps? Now, we can, we can use the maps here. So here's a map. And um, as you see, uh, off to the left there, off to the west, that's the western coast of northern Israel. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, over to the right here is the Sea of Galilee. And you see some towns dotted around the Sea of Galilee. Now, the reason I'm showing you that is over the next five chapters, we're going to be reading stories about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, all around that lake. It's really not that big of a lake. They call it the sea. It's just, just kind of a moderate-sized lake. And uh, Jesus did a year and a half of ministry there. And there was about 240 different villages and towns around there. Almost all of them had a synagogue. Notice here in verse 14, Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went about him throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what's a synagogue? Um, not the temple. There's only one temple that was in Jerusalem, and that was the place you had to go to worship. That's where all the festivals and the feast and the sacrifices, they could only be offered in Jerusalem, about three days walk to the south of this area in Galilee, only one temple. But every Jewish community 
had a synagogue. The synagogue was usually made of stone. It faced toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, and it really wasn't a place of worship. It was more of a gathering place. It was a place of teaching and learning the Hebrew scriptures. And so the people would come every Sabbath to learn the Old Testament stories of how God was at work through the Jewish people. And so Jesus is teaching in these synagogues. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. On the count of three, tell me your hometown. Where were you brought up? Three, two, one. All right, so I'm sure that that was better than Muskogee, Oklahoma, okay? That's where I was, that was where I was born and raised. And that's a pretty obscure place, but that's a parallel to the city of Nazareth. Nazareth was not a metropolitan area. It was a really insignificant place, just kind of a hick town. That's where Jesus was from, which gives those of us who are from Muskogee hope that Jesus can enter to, that Jesus can identify with people that were from obscure places. And so you remember Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's in the southern Judean area down by Jerusalem. But his hometown where he was brought up was Nazareth. So Mary and Joseph, this is where the carpentry business would have been for Joseph. And so he was well known. They'd watched him grow up. Jesus is about 30 years old. For 30 years, they had watched him grow up there in Nazareth, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, just put yourself in a time machine, transport yourself back to first century Galilee in this little city of Nazareth, and you've come to the gathering place, the synagogue, and you would have seen a very familiar face there. You would have seen Jesus. Now just, just think, the, think about this. Jesus had spent almost every Sabbath of his 30-year life in this synagogue. He would have been as familiar as as some of your children are around here because you drag them to church every time you come to church on Sunday and they're just, we see them and we know them, they're recognized, they're just like part of the furniture around here. You come to church, you see your kid, you see you because this is your gathering place as it should be every Sunday. Turn to your neighbor and say, as it should be every Sunday on time even. Okay, that's just a little side note, but that's what, Jesus was a very familiar face in this synagogue. So now as an adult, He's actually one of the ones that has the privilege of reading the scripture. Now again, time machine. This was first century. People didn't bring their Bibles to the synagogue. You know why? There were no printed Bibles. There was no, and if you were to bring your Bible, it would have been a big library of scrolls, you know, of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we're living in a day where we have such access to God's word and we take it so for granted. No Bible apps back in the day. Um, it just it blows your mind to think about the access to God's word. If you wanted access to the scripture in first century Galilee, there was only one place you could have access to it in the synagogue where somebody would un 
roll a scroll and read it to you. They couldn't even say, open your scroll, because <laughs> you wouldn't have had a scroll. You would just have to be a very attentive listener and memorizer of God's word as it was audibly transmitted to you. So here's Jesus, he's in the temple, today's his day, he gets to read the scripture in the synagogue. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now let me put the pause button right there. And I wanna ask you right now to unroll your scroll of Isaiah. Hold your finger right there or put that little ribbon right there and turn back to Isaiah. If you, this is Bible drill time. Bible drill, see if you can find Isaiah. It's about halfway through the Old Testament there. Turn to the right a little bit. Isaiah, it's one of the longest books in the Old Testament and find chapter 61, okay? Don't lose your place in Luke 4. We're coming back there. Some of you that are using a Bible app right now are totally confused. Where's the ribbon? I can't find it. What? You know, so bring a printed Bible. It will help you navigate the scripture, okay? So how many of you have found Isaiah 61? Have you found it? All right, this is what Jesus read to them. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now hold your place there, flip back to Luke 4, and we pick it up in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And there's a dramatic pause. And all the eyes of, in the synagogue the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Is he gonna say something? Here's what he says. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is, has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was the scripture? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For years, 700 years, God's people understood that Isaiah 61 was a prophecy that would predict some day, someone would come 
to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind, to heal the wounds of the oppressed. And did you hear what Jesus said? You don't have to wait for someday anymore. It's no longer someday. Jesus said, it's today. And in doing so, Jesus said that prophecy was about me. And here I am. And it boggled their brain. They did not know what to do with what he was saying. Jesus, I mean, didn't we change his diapers? Uh, didn't we keep him in the nursery? Didn't, wasn't he the angel at the Christmas cantata one year? You know, they, they, he was so familiar. It's like, we, we thought it was going to be like a, a king riding into town, you know, releasing us from the power of Roman oppression. And it's Jesus from Nazareth? Now, I want you to notice back over in Isaiah 61, a very important place. Now, do you, again, before you go there, do you notice what happened? See, he, he read, he rolled it up, he gave it back, and he sat down. He stopped reading. He didn't continue to read all of Isaiah 61. He stopped, flip back over to Isaiah 61. Do you see verse 2? to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at the next phrase. And the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see the white space between those two phrases? Between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see the white space in there? That's where we live. When Jesus came the first time, what did he do? He declared that today is a day of the Lord's favor. When Jesus comes the second time, he's going to declare today is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Do you see what he did? He announced there is a new day. All things are new. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. Here's the first thing I came to tell you. Jesus declares a new day for broken people. And we are living in that day. And it is a limited time frame. If you have not yet embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the one who came to set you free from sin, what are you waiting for? Your time is limited. Jesus could come back at any moment. And when he comes back, the year of the Lord's favor is over. Your opportunity to get right with God is over. Because when he comes again, the only thing that people outside of Christ will experience is the vengeance of the Lord as he settles all moral accounts, as he brings justice to every injustice, as he brings retribution and vengeance upon every sin that is not atoned for outside of Christ. We live in the space in between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And you understand when we talk about a day, we're not talking about like a 24 hour day, we're talking about an era, and we're not talking about a year, 365 years, we're talking about a, a time period where Jesus opened it up to us 2019 years ago and we are waiting 
for his second coming where he will make all things new. It's a new day for broken people. But I want you to notice who Jesus came for. Very specific people that he describes back over in Luke chapter four. If you're not back in Luke chapter four, now we're gonna stay there the rest of the time there. And I want you to notice how he describes these broken people. What did Jesus come to accomplish and who did he come to redeem? The answer to that question is found in verse 18. He describes these people in four different ways. He calls them poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. What does that mean? Understand this. Sin makes us poor. Sin takes us captive. Sin makes us blind, and sin wounds the oppressed. Now, if I had greeted you this morning by saying something like this, welcome to Gospel City Church, you poor captive, blind, oppressed people. Would you you're like, I think I might find a different church because that's not very flattering, is it? As a matter of fact, if you are listening closely, that is offensive. To strip away all of your self-esteem, to strip away all of your self-righteousness and to call you a poor captive, blind, oppressed person is pretty offensive. And yet it is only broken people that will seek a savior. Until you understand your spiritual poverty, your spiritual imprisonment, your spiritual blindness, and your spiritual oppression, You will treat Jesus as an insignificant historical figure who is only useful for grandmothers and Girl Scouts. Do you have need of a Savior? Or are you doing okay on your own? Every opportunity we have to encounter Jesus is an opportunity to express how much we need him to do something new in our lives. And so let's understand what this means. Understand, we're poor. Now listen, he's not talking about economically poor. He's talking about spiritually poor. As a matter of fact, some of the most economically poor people are some of the most spiritually rich people because they understand how much they need Christ because they have such limited resources to live on. And yet some of the most economically rich people are some of the most spiritually poor because why do you need Jesus when you've got money? And so understand this spiritual poverty comes as a result of the consequences of sin. What does sin do? Sin beats you up and robs you of everything that's valuable in life. Sin steals from you your joy. It steals intimacy from God. It steals your integrity. And sin leaves you with no ability to pay your sin debt and leaves you in a debtor's prison awaiting the judgment of God. We're spiritually poor. Not only that, we're spiritually captive. Now, the world would tell you that it's, it's those religious people, it's, it's those Jesus people that are really in a prison. I mean, they don't have any freedom to do the things that they 
what to do and they have to follow all these rules. But the reality is it is sinners who are captive to sin. It's sinners that have lost their freedom. Sin traps you into patterns of thinking and behaving which you can't bend your way back out of. Sin puts you in bondage. It makes you its slave. It wears down your resistance to say no to other sin. And then it puts you in a prison cell on death row awaiting the just judgment of a holy God makes you its captive. And sin causes spiritual blindness. Now, spiritual blindness is the default condition of the human heart. You are born into this world without the ability to see how selfish and rotten you really are. You don't have the ability to see how holy and righteous God is and how compassionate and loving and merciful he is. We're blind to those things. We're blind to the effects of sin. We're blind to the effects of our sin on other people. We're blind to the damage that our sin causes. If, if God would open our eyes to see the damage sin causes, we would never sin again. And yet we're spiritually blind. We walk around bumping into things, causing damage to ourselves and to others. And we need something and someone outside of us to open our eyes to spiritual realities, to see the glory of Christ. And then finally, he says that he's come for the oppressed. Anybody here experience any stress this week at all? Raise your hand if you experienced any stress whatsoever. Stressed about a relationship, stressed about finances, stressed about your inability to make something right or build something or achieve an ambition. All of this. Do you know what all of that is? It's the oppression, it's the heaviness, it's the weightiness that we feel living in a sin broken, fallen world. God never designed you to experience any stress or any oppression. Do you know what you're feeling? In some way, every ounce of stress is related to a sinful choice. Either a sinful choice that you made that brought stress into your life or a sinful choice that somebody else made that's making your life feel stressed and oppressed. Any oppressed people here living with the consequences of what somebody else did to you? An abuse of power, an injustice, somebody slandered you, stole from you, mistreated you, broke a promise to you? This is the world we live in. We're all oppressed. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Don't you feel better about yourself? Jesus calls you poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. And you should be offended at this point. It's like... I ain't that. I got some resources and I got some power and I can see a few things and I'm enlightened and, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've been beat up but I'm overcoming. That's what the world tells you to do with all that. Or you could admit you need a savior and take all that to him and believe that Jesus was the one who came to set the captives free Notice what he said he would do. Jesus pays our debt. Yes, we're spiritually impoverished. We have nothing to offer God as payment for our sin. But notice what the apostle Paul said. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. 
so that you, by his poverty, might become spiritually rich. The only way to be rich before God is to exchange your poverty for his riches because he exchanged his riches for your poverty. That's the gospel. It's what Jesus came to do. Not only that, Jesus sets us free. Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul said, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, sin was your master, you have become obedient from the heart and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so he set us free so that we can obey and serve him with a new level of freedom we never had before. Jesus opens our eyes. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, the apostle Paul said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He opens our eyes to see our need for Christ. He opens our eyes to see the, the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of Christ's forgiveness as he died on that cross. And then Jesus heals our wounds. All of you oppressed, stressed people, what should you do? Listen to Jesus. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to give poor, captive, blind, oppressed people new life. All things can be new in Jesus. Now, how do you think the people in Nazareth responded to that message? Notice, pick up the story here in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It, Jesus became an instant pop icon and they loved what he was saying. Gracious words, he's so eloquent. He's such a fine young boy that's grown up here in our, in our synagogue and what a fine family he comes from. As a matter of fact, that's what they said. Uh, isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph, we've done such a great job teaching your child the scriptures here. Now, what do you think most preachers would do when they found out that they were in a crowd of people who thought favorably of them? Most preachers I know would take an offering at that point. It's like, hey, you know, I'm becoming popular and I can build a, an even greater following and, and man, I can get people to, 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 you know, follow and fulfill my dreams and all this. That's not what Jesus did. Listen, Jesus was not content with their passive approval of him. He was not content to let them think he was just Joseph's son. They hadn't yet grasped that he was God's son and he was worthy of not just their passive approval, but their passionate worship. And Jesus is not content with you giving him your passive approval either. So do you know what he does? He presses in a little harder. And he realizes what was meant to offend them hadn't yet worked. So he tries a little harder. 
to offend them. Now notice what he says in verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Here it is. Physician, heal yourself. Now, that's not one of the Proverbs we have in the Old Testament written by Solomon. It was either a saying in the town or maybe it was a part of a song lyric that was in the top of 10, you know, on the Christian hits or something. I don't know. But the, what does it mean? Like, why would he say that? Christian heal or physician heal yourself. It's just basically they were saying, why are you, why are you diagnosing us? We're not sick and we don't need your medicine. That's what they were saying. And then he predicts what they would say. They said, uh, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So remember Capernaum, up the road, Sea of Galilee. If you were in church last week, Andrew and I filmed that little video introducing Stephen Love before he preached, and we were in Capernaum when we filmed that. And Jesus did so many miracles in Capernaum. Matter of fact, in the second half of this chapter, you can look down there and you can see that um, one of the things that Jesus did is he cast a demon out of a possessed man. Uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. Jesus fed 5,000 people. Um, he helped somebody catch a miraculous amount of fish. He healed a, uh, a paralytic. He healed a centurion servant. Uh, he healed a woman with the issue of blood, and he healed a man with withered hand. He did all of that in Capernaum. And they were saying, hey, this is your hometown here. Why don't you do some of those things here? Why don't you make our lives a little easier? And then we might believe that you're something more than Joseph's son. Are you like that? Do you require God to do some kind of miracle to make your life easier before you will believe who he says he is? Listen, don't follow Jesus because of what he can do for you. Follow Jesus because of who Jesus said he is. Because he is the promised Messiah that was predicted 700 years before he showed up. And so the story continues here. Jesus presses a little harder and he gives them two illustrations to really offend them. Uh, beginning in verse 24, he said, I, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Do you know what he's saying? The more familiar you are with Jesus, the more you think the message of Jesus is for somebody else. The people who were the closest to the truth were the ones who were prone to miss it. That's a lesson for us here. If you're one of those people that have been in church for 30 years and you've heard this message, you know how this ends and you're really good with all the Bible trivia, you, you might want to make sure that you're not an old, crusty wineskin. Jesus comes to make all things new, and he wants to encounter people that are very familiar with Jesus. And so he gives them two illustrations. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only one, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. What does all that mean? Well, it's a very familiar story in the Old Testament. There was a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah. 
Jesus is clearly equating himself with Elijah. Like Elijah was a prophet, Jesus is saying, I'm a prophet. And like Elijah's message was rejected by people that were closest to it, you guys are in danger of missing the message that I'm giving you. And so God bypassed those who were most familiar. And do you know who he went to? He went to an outsider. The widow of Zarephath, we call her. She was a Gentile. And she had a death sentence on her. Number one, she was a widow. She had nobody to take care of her. And there was a famine in the land. There was no food. She was about to die. She had a terminal condition. Elijah shows up. She believes Elijah's message. And she's saved. Second story is about Elisha in verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. So again, another famous Old Testament story about an enemy general from Syria, the enemies of God's people. Naaman's got a problem. He's got leprosy. In order to get healed, God sends Elisha to him and tells him, you got to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He humbles himself and he dips in the Jordan River and he believes the message and he's saved. Jesus gives two stories about two prophets who were rejected by God's people and they both went to outsiders. They both went to Gentiles. What's the message? The message is simply this. Jesus provides new access for outsiders. If you feel like an outsider, and if you're not an ethnic Jewish person, you are an outsider like I am. These promises that, that, that we lean on are, were originally meant for, for the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and because those, those precious people rejected the message, Jesus took that message outside of the Hebrew people and thank God we all have access to it now because Jesus brought that message to us. So Jesus provides new access for outsiders. Here's the last thing. Jesus presents a new problem for self-righteous people. Let's pick up the story in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Oh, now Jesus is getting the reaction. At first they liked him, passive approval. He's like, I'm not going to let you get off that easy. I'm not going to let you think that well of yourself. Now they're offended because he's telling them they're going to miss the message. Now, for verse 29, we're going to go on location. We have a correspondent stationed in Nazareth right now. And he's going to help us. So with I'm verse here 29. in Nazareth. You can see behind me modern day Nazareth. This is Jesus' hometown. And in Luke chapter 4, of course, we read the story of Jesus entering into the synagogue and launching his ministry from reading Isaiah chapter 61. The fulfillment of that prophecy, Jesus said, was in their midst as he read it. And they were pretty upset with him for identifying himself as that Old Testament Messiah. In fact, in verse 29, it says this. It says, they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
And so I'm standing on the very spot where they would have brought Jesus. This is the brow of the hill on which the city is built. And there's cliffs all around me here. And so this is the very spot where Jesus would have been rejected by those among his own people. So they took him to that very spot where I stood last week and the mob is about to throw him off the cliff. The drama is building. So what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to be killed after he preaches his first sermon? Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. You want a miracle, do you? How about this? The disappearing Savior just goes away. I mean, they had their hands all over him. They were about to throw him off the cliff. And in a gracious act of mercy, do you know what Jesus does? He does not allow them to act on their sinful desires. He disappears. Why did they want to throw him off the cliff? It's because they couldn't get him off their mind. He kept pressing in and pressing in. Hey, you ever try to throw Jesus off a cliff? I mean, if you're, if you're not going to receive Jesus, you have to try to eliminate him from your thinking. That's what they were doing, and they thought, we'll not, not only eliminate, eliminate him from our thinking, we'll eliminate him altogether by throwing him off the cliff. But Jesus knew he had three more years of ministry. And do you know what he does? He allows them more time by not eliminating him. You see, Jesus knew his life was not going to end by being thrown off a cliff by them. His life was going to end three years later by being thrown on a cross for them. Jesus loved them too much to allow them to act on their evil desires. Why? Because today is a day of the Lord's favor. Jesus should have thrown them off the cliff. But in his mercy and his love, he'd opened an opportunity for them to repent and believe. That door is still open. There's really only two options. You're either going to throw Jesus off a cliff or you're going to follow him to the cross. Every time we encounter Jesus, we're responsible to respond with faith and repentance so that all things are made new. I want to ask you to stand right now. Bow your heads with me. And before we leave, would you just respond to what you've heard in the scripture today? If you were there in that synagogue, would you have been one of the ones who would have been brought to your knees with the thought, I am poor, I am a captive of sin, I am spiritually blind, and I'm oppressed? Or would you have been one that swelled up in pride and tried to defend yourself and justify yourself and, and presented your self-esteem 
as a defense against what Jesus was saying about you. Listen, only those who embrace their brokenness will receive Jesus as the remedy for sin. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've never done that for the very first time, if you've just in your mind tried to get Jesus as far away from your mind as possible, throw him off the cliff, poke holes in why the scripture can't be true, justify why Jesus couldn't possibly be someone who was predicted to come hundreds of years earlier. There's no way you can kill Jesus. If you try to throw him off the cliff, he lives, you die. If you follow him to the cross, he dies, you live. And three days later, he lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for the love that you have for us. In mercy, you've opened up a door, a day of favor. And Lord, we know that time's running out. And when you come again, you won't declare the day of the Lord's favor. You'll declare that the time is up and the vengeance has come. God, I pray that every person here in a genuine act of faith would trust you as Savior, as Lord, and for those of us that this is very familiar, God, never let us become old, crusty wineskins. Fill us up with 